Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. So I think this kind of secret sauce that we've developed has has really been was able to kind of hold these spaces for everybody. So we avoid the common complaint when you use law enforcement that, you know, you're just trying to sweep away all the poor people so you can make rich people comfortable. And I think it's hard for a city like San Francisco to swallow and a little embarrassing. And so this has allowed everybody to be in the same space and feel safe <laughs> and interact, uh, you know, like I said, with, with respect. In exploring the intersection of homelessness and public space, I have sometimes heard comments like, why should we build more parks if they're just going to get overrun by the homeless? This was a challenging sentiment the first time I heard it, but it became only more so the third, fourth, and fifth times it was expressed in public forums. What this idea revealed to me was that the forces of civic distrust that we see playing out on the national level are also finding purchase in localities across America, and left me with the question, can we rebuild those bonds of belief in a shared, mutually beneficial purpose? Which is why I had to talk to today's guests. Suzanne Neenaber is the Partnerships Director with the Center for Active Design, which recently published the groundbreaking Assembly Civic Design Guidelines that suggest 10 strategies for rebuilding civic trust. Joining Suzanne today to discuss how these ideas are playing out in San Francisco are Lena Miller and Cassie Hoprich. Lena is the founder and executive director of Hunter's Point Family and director of the Bayshore Navigation Center in San Francisco, and Cassie is a strategist with Mayor London Breed's Fix-It team. On the Homeland Lab website, you can see images of some of the works of each of today's guests, including the Civic Center Commons that Cassie and Lena discuss, as well as some of the key findings from Assembly that Suzanne shares. Hey, Cassie, Suzanne, and Lena, thank you so much for joining me on the Homeland Lab podcast today. Let's get started um, by having each of you introduce yourselves and how your work has intersected with the issue of homelessness in public space. So I'm Cassie, I'm a strategist with the Marist Fix-It team. Uh, through this role and in previous roles for the city of San Francisco, I've been fortunate enough to work on San Francisco public spaces, um, anything ranging from urban design and in my current role, quality of life challenges, um, focused really on the built environment. Um, through, this, through this role, our team, um, has worked a lot with thousands of residents across the entire city about quality of life concerns in their neighborhoods. And uh, not surprisingly, one of the greatest challenges that many residents face is um, how to navigate their their neighbors that are dependent on our public spaces, so people experiencing homelessness. Um, while we say that a lot of our work focuses on built environment improvements, we hear these concerns and we hear these questions and um, we're really inspired by the people that ask, you know, what can we do differently? How can the city try something different in our neighborhood? We want to be empathetic, but what does that mean? Uh, what we try to do is work with city agencies to either uh, strategically uh, implement or distribute services that we know to be available 
um, for individuals experiencing homelessness or in certain neighborhoods where we think that there is a service gap. Um, we try to work with our partners to uh, both in the city and in the community to figure out what can we introduce into this community the neighbors are asking for and that we see a clear need for. So something like that might um, resemble a partnership with a nonprofit that engages um, people experiencing homelessness and work experience opportunities to beautify public spaces. So that's how my work uh, touches broader world of homelessness. Um, I'm Lena Miller. I am the director of the Navigation Center in San Francisco, which is a 128-bed facility uh, for homeless people with low thresholds. Um, and I am also the founder and executive director of the Hunters Point family. And the reason that I'm on this podcast today is because the Hunters Point family um, has over the last two years uh, found a niche in this intersection you're talking about uh, homelessness in public space. Uh, and what we do is we provide ambassadors and those ambassadors uh, go out into some of the most impacted intersections in San Francisco uh, by both uh, people who are suffering with mental health issues and uh, substance abuse. And, and usually one is exacerbated the other. Uh, and these areas have kind of gotten out of control. Um, and we have found um, that with our particular secret sauce and our approach that we have created uh, spaces uh, where all people can be. So these same folks that were that I just talked about and, you know, tourists and regular business people and citizens, regular old citizens and everybody can be in the same space at once and feel safe and the area be clean and um, just it, it, everyone can enjoy the city together. So we currently uh, employ over 200 people to provide these services throughout in specific areas throughout San Francisco. Could you just clarify, uh, Lena, what a navigation center is? That may be a term that folks haven't heard before. Yeah, yeah. So, I, and I'm trying to be careful not to. Um, when I say navigation center, I think most people would identify it like a, a a homeless shelter. But what's different about a navigation center? A navigation center is a particular. It's a name for a particular model that, as I mentioned, has low threshold. And what low threshold means is that we are uh, we have a harm reduction model, and so people can use. They can't use in the facility, but we can be aware that they're active users. Um, people can have pets, pets, partners, and possessions. Uh, so although we limit the amount of possessions people can have with them on the floor, they can bring all these things. Um, men and women are mixed. Um, and so it's, they can eat when they, when they want, whenever they want a meal, they, they are able to access that. Uh, so that's what a navigation center is. You're really working with the harm reduction model and uh, similar to our model with the ambassadors you know, utilizing love and respect uh, to to move people through a healing process as a, in addition to a uh, permanent housing process. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Suzanne Neighbor with the Center for Active Design. Um, we're a nonprofit organization that works nationally and internationally um, to advance design and development practice that promotes healthier and more engaged communities. Um, we largely sit at the intersection of scholarly research and practice, and what we try to do is take kind of academic findings and translate them into tools 
that um, community leaders and members can use uh, to, to create healthier buildings and public spaces. And many people might be familiar with our work um, through the New York City's Active Design Guidelines, um, which came out in 2010, and also the Fitwell Healthy Building Certification that we run. Um, I think the reason why I'm on the call today is that for the past four years, um, I've been leading an initiative that we call Assembly, and it's really looking at how the design and maintenance conditions of public space impact the civic life of communities. Things like our sense of trust in each other, trust in neighbors, trust in local government, our participation in public life, our inclination to be stewards of our community. So um, I'm, I actually, through this work, was able to uh, build connections with Kathy and Lena. I'm really inspired by the work that they do. Um, and over the course of our research, we've discovered that the maintenance of public space is absolutely uh, crucial to how we, how we perceive our community. Um, so I can talk about some findings on that front. Yeah, why don't you draw that out a little bit for us um, and talk about, you know, people think that maintenance is obviously an important thing, but for you and your research, you've really honed in on it as probably, you know, one of the top things that people in the city care about in terms of building their civic trust in, in the government that surrounds them, in the people that are within their neighborhood. Can you draw that idea out a little bit more for us? Yeah, absolutely. So to give you a little bit of background on this work, um, we were approached by Knight Foundation um, several years ago with the, with the challenge. Um, you know, a lot of people were thinking, you know, there's, there's a connection here. The way our design, our public spaces are designed and maintained has an impact on our communities and our perceptions of, of each other, perceptions of our government. But we wanted to investigate more about, you know, what does that really mean? Um, so we undertook a variety of original research initiatives with a, we had an advisory committee that was um, very multidisciplinary in nature that guided this work. Um, and one of the most exciting pieces of research that we did was something called the Assembly Civic Engagement Survey, uh, where we reached out to, um, you know, thousands of people around the country, many different cities, many different types of economic and demographic situations. And we asked them questions about, um, you know, tell us about the about design qualities and public space amenities in your community, and tell us about the conditions they're in. Um, then we also ask them questions about sense of trust, whether they voted in local elections, whether they volunteered or, or, or involved in stewardship activities, and we started to draw some really fascinating associations from that study. Um, and one of the things that came out most clearly is that um, obviously people like to have things like um, parks and sidewalks for and walkable communities. Um, they appreciate their public library. They appreciate things like transit. However, when there was a maintenance concern, um, that the, that sense of, of trust and appreciation in the community would uh, was associated with a precipitous decline. So just to, to give you one example, we asked people if they could change one thing about their community. And we gave them a whole menu of options to choose from. And about a quarter of respondents said litter was a major issue that they'd like to see improved. Um, and in fact, people who said that they lived in high litter communities uh, exhibited lower civic trust on a range of levels. Uh, for example, they were less likely to say they were proud of their community. Um, they were 10% less likely to say they trusted their local government and also 10% less likely to believe that community members care about each other. As we think about public space management, um, and we think about designing public space, it's really important for us to consider the maintenance conditions and, and really plan that in within the design phase. So, so Cassie, I'm maybe turning to you now, like, and you, you must have had a sense of this 
um, this dynamic playing out just in the comments that you receive in the mayor's office. So, so how is the city kind of taking that insight that Suzanne provides and kind of turning that into action at the local level in San Francisco? Sure. And just to make sure I'm, I'm understanding what you're asking correctly, you mean that maintenance has an impact on the quality of life of individuals and, and can hinder or enhance their trust in government? Okay. Um, well, I mean, the manif like the creation of the Fix-It team was a direct outcome of this realization. We didn't comprehend it in quite um, as sophisticated as a, of a way <laughs> as Center for Active Design has been able to articulate, but um, it was no secret that the citizens of San Francisco were, were feeling frustrated with the um, you know cleanliness conditions of their streets and sidewalks, and not to be confused with also large populations of individuals who have become very dependent on our public spaces and have a right to these public spaces. Um, you know, we have multiple phenomena going on. Um, but again, you know, people wanted to be heard. People were coming to the mayor, were coming to the respective city agencies, telling them, you know, this isn't working in my neighborhood and your lack of action is, is feeling like apathy. Um, and so, that's when um, the Fix-It team was created, really, um, with an executive directive in May of 2016. Um, our director, Sandra Zuniga, was appointed to be the Fix-It director um, for this team um, because of her lengthy experience working for our Department of Public Works and also just great success in working with community in general. And by that, I mean listening to people and actually communicating with them and following up on things that they would like to either know more about or see accomplished in their in their respective neighborhood or somewhere in the city that matters to them. But again, you know, to answer to answer the question that you're posing, we we definitely see that this correlates with civic trust and and a, a belief that government is there to to serve the people. What is so important about a team like ours is not only going out and meeting with people um, in the format of a community meeting which is what most government entities do when they're conducting any type of outreach, you know, hold up at some recreation center and invite people to come from the hours of six to eight to talk. Um, but we also walk through the neighborhood with residents at another time. We also have countless one-on-one -on -one meetings. We're also, you know, in text message conversations and have phone calls with residents too. We're, we're on the hook. Um, we also believe in, in making quick and fast fixes just to restore some trust in government. And then we're also, you know, ready to dive into systemic challenges in the neighborhood. And, you know, this leads directly into homelessness. It's a very complex challenge. Um, and sometimes we, a lot of work we do is also helping people understand that there's a difference between your dirt, your sidewalks feeling dirty and a population, a vulnerable population being dependent on streets and sidewalks. And we do do a lot of work either on our own or in partnership with the Department of Homelessness and Department of Housing to help people try to understand that because it's important to not mix the two up. Um, it's important to see that you're talking about, you know, broken streetlights and potholes, and then you're also talking about human beings, and those are not one of the same thing. Um, but that's where people then look to us and say, well, well, because your job is to fix things on our streets and sidewalks, and you also have this empathetic lens, what can you do that's more creative? And again, like I was saying earlier, that's where we really push ourselves to think of creative ways to allocate resources that the city is already in charge of, and how can we bridge and partner with organizations like Hunter Twine Family 
and like another group here in the city called Downtown Streets Team that engages homeless folks in beautifying public space while providing them with employment, services, and case management. So we're, we're always trying to figure out how do we improve and enhance civic trust. And, you know, that's why it was so illuminating meeting Suzanne, because she actually had numbers to back up this, this sort of um, gut reaction that, that our administration was starting to have back in 2016 with the creation of our team. So I, it, it seems to me like you're you're trying to rewrite a pretty rutted story. I mean, the story around homelessness has been uh, really, really fraught and really um, difficult and, you know, pe push people out and then they come back and people get upset. But it seems like you're trying to say that by balancing this kind of this concern about civic trust, the concern, the legitimate concern around street safety, street cleanliness, but also bringing this empathetic lens to the table, you're trying to find ways to write a new or a different story within your community. Um, are there specific examples that you can think of that highlight kind of the community coming together to rewrite a different story beyond what you've already shared? Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, there were, so the way we operate, we have zones that we identify and then we um, base all of our work on these zones. And so they're kind of micro neighborhoods, really. They're like seven blocks by seven blocks. Um, so I, I give you that background because there was there were two zones that um, are in our the Mission District um, neighborhood in San Francisco um, that we have been working in for a little over a year now. And when we first started to work in that neighborhood, we we received the kind of feedback that we would typically expect from um, residents, things like, you know, we need to get our park repaved, the lights have been out there, we need these trees trimmed. And then we also had a lot of concerns um, coming forward about human behavior on their streets and sidewalks. Um, and it was complex and convoluted and there was a lot of anger and frustration and, and you know, it really felt like I was coming from a place of, I've been trying to get help and no one has been able to give me a good answer. Uh, and so there's, I guess, two ways that we were trying to rewrite how the city can react and respond and work with residents. One is, tell me your problems and I will figure out what department is able to solve them, um, which sounds super basic, but if you've ever attended a, a government meeting, um, for a project that's being led by a Metro Transit Authority or a Department of Public Works, you'll often find that the way in which they are communicating is is very specific to what is within their domain or their jurisdiction. And so I can't emphasize enough how helpful it is for people to be able to just talk and not have to worry about what agency they're trying to identify as they are expressing their concerns. So that was really huge, especially when it came to conversations about human behavior on the streets, because it wasn't just about people experiencing homelessness. It was a lot of different things that were happening. And so that was really helpful for us to, you know, to hear that and then to take steps that, you know, would help us identify the right solutions. Um, the other thing was in just spending time with the residents in these zones, we, we came to learn that once you got past that frustration, you realized that there was a lot of confusion and a lot of empathy that needed to be placed somewhere. And so what was exciting for these residents was when they learned about um, an organization that could come in and actually accomplish both cleaning up their neighborhood. There is excess litter. 
there there are there is a need for you know other issues to be called into our our 311 service um but they also wanted to see some some type of increased presence on the streets and sidewalks and and see increased outreach being done and that was really exciting for us once we were able to kind of find that language with residents and then able to, we were then able to find a model that sort of matched the language that they were articulating to us so again we're rewriting it in a in the second way which is spending time with people working through their frustration to a point where we can really understand you know what would success look like for you you know what would what would work for your neighborhood and how can that come from a place of empathy um you know really pushing past that angry frustrated behavior or language rather and getting more solution oriented but letting the residents like take the wheel and and try and tell us what would work for them instead of us imposing ideas that we think would work so um that was a really incredible learning opportunity and then earlier this year in june our our new mayor mayor Lyndon breed was able to fund this program for an entire year in the mission district we're going to have a huge downtown streets team there which means that dozens of individuals experiencing homelessness will be able to participate in the program and they're going to have full-time case manager and a full-time employment specialist um, there to serve those individuals um, as they're embarking on the journey of, of you know, re-entering the workforce and taking whatever steps work for each individual to, to um, you know, make some changes in their life. Uh, and so it was a pretty incredible outcome and we were very fortunate to able to get to that point with the residents because have we not gotten to that point with them where they were able to articulate what they thought their community needed we wouldn't have been able to secure funding to make this happen and so it was absolutely a team effort and i think it's a, it's a new way for government to operate so so is that where you enter the picture then lena where you begin to steward these public spaces as you've said with love not with force i think so i think well we we started with just in that capacity, we started with just the toilet, and so it was. It, it when we started with the toilets, basically, it was it was to, to make sure that we were ambassadors in the area um, and kept it clean and safe. Uh, the toilets, but something else started to happen, and that is that um, our monitors for the toilets became really integrated into the community. And because I, I think largely having to do with the with the population that that we employ, that they it, it really got personal to them, and and they took a lot of pride in ownership, and 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 also their presence kind of brought a calm to each area, um, and and so it started to kind of spill over where you had people, particularly homeless people, would say, you know, hey, can I use your broom, you know, and really kind of got into wanting to keep the area clean and, and kind of amplifying uh, that vibe they were bringing. And then other people started to notice. San Francisco Public Works asked us if we would use similar population to, you know, clean up some of the, the worst parts, uh, the most impacted parts of San Francisco. Right now it's the, the Tenderloin um, and South of Market. Uh, in these areas, you know, these are historic areas in San Francisco where we've had a lot of SROs, a lot of homelessness, a lot of open-air drugs, selling you, uh, defecation, you're, you know, it all goes down in the tenderloin. Um, and uh, so we, and, and then the city kind of 
started paying attention and they said, can we use, you know, your, your people to, to play this role um, in Civic Center, which has been very similar. You know, I, I'm a San Francisco native. I grew up here and as far as long as I can remember, um, you had similar behavior. You had people kind of sleeping in front of City Hall and, you know, selling drugs, using drugs, and it got to be, it was very scary for a while. And so they they just they wanted to put up a public art through the through the exploratorium. So these massive kind of inter interactional um, displays where people can make music and do all kind of interesting things where they would engage with one another. But the issue was how can we make you know how do we make sure people don't use the bathroom on them? They don't graffiti on them. They don't tear them apart and you can use the parts for different things. And so they just, you know, they asked us if we could kind of play that role to not only make sure that they're safe and and, and clean, but also engage with the public. Um, and so we did that and we did it really well. And I think through all these things, we learned kind of what it is that that we're doing and began to refine what it was. And it's, it's the ambassadorship. And I, I think it is. It's 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 based on love and respect. Um, whereas security is more based on, I have more, I have authority to control you. And so I'm going to communicate, I'm going to communicate with you with that power, which, which I mentioned briefly, um, the population that we employ, um, the vast majority are former long-term offenders, um, also known as lifers. So these are people who've served, who, who received a life sentence let's say 25 to life, 35 to life. And finally, finally, they're, um, they get their freedom. And after, after you have to go through a very, very rigorous process in order to be released when you have an L or life, you know, on your sentence. And so these people, they've gone through, you know, a tremendous amount of groups, individual therapy. I mean, you name it, they've worked on a lot of their triggers or they've worked on their triggers. They've, they've really worked and had to, uh, work on themselves and be very introspective for decades. But they've also learned to survive in very dangerous situations, to be able to read people very well, um, to be able to kind of diffuse things immediately. There's all kinds of things they've, they've learned in that, in that environment that makes them, I mean, there's, there's no population that would be able to be as effective in, in that situation. And also because they're former lifers, they're not going to take any chances. They have the lowest recidivism rate. You know, they're not going to do something stupid on the job because, you know, they don't, first of all, they don't want to go back to jail. They, it's, it's real serious for them. And, um, you know, they have a different kind of standard. They want to give back to society. So I think this kind of secret sauce that we've developed has, has really been, was able to kind of hold these spaces. And like I said, for everybody. So we avoid the common complaint uh, when you use law enforcement that, you know, you're just trying to, you know, sweep away all the poor people so you can make, you know, rich people comfortable. And I, I think it's hard for a city like San Francisco to swallow and a little embarrassing. And so this has allowed everybody to be in the same space and feel safe <laughs> and interact, uh, you know, like I said, with, with respect. I just also wanted to jump in on this whole notion of changing the narrative too. 
I like I found you know the, learning from Lena to be so inspiring, and it's also been a real benefit to um, putting these design guidelines together. And before I forget, I just want to mention that so our, our new publication is called the Assembly Civic Design Guidelines. So it has a lot of the research findings that I discussed earlier, also um, strategies that not, that go well beyond maintenance. So really look at how to create more welcoming and activated and inclusive public spaces that that people really identify with and feel proud of. And we've had input from such a, a vast array of, of cities and inspiring projects and um, contributors in the field. Um, and so, you know, just one example that I think echoes what we're talking about today. Um, one of our advisors is Darren Johnston at the Brownsville Community Justice Center in Brooklyn. And I've talked with him a lot about his work um, in a neighborhood that is, you know, very known as very high crime, high poverty, underserved um, in terms of uh, civic and city resources on a, on a variety of fronts and and discussing the the, the work he's doing and um, with with young people in that community it really is coming down to changing the narrative you know for too long the corridors that they've been living in working on or have you know the, the, the old story is that this is a dirty smelly place and no one feels safe there so just avoid it and by working with the the young people in his community, um, they're really able to change that and say, you know, these and these are, you know, folks who, and perhaps in another time would be perceived as um, creating a space that's unsafe. Um, maybe they, you know, have some type of minor infraction. That's how they got involved with the Justice Center to begin with. But they can also become the leaders and the agents of change and be the ones who are actually uh, you know, making it the place they want to be. So they've done beautiful plaza. They've worked on lighting installations to make things feel safer at night. Um, they've also done some amazing um, activations and uh, parties that they have on the block every week on Belmont Avenue. Um, and I think that that was that was what hit me was just that that it's it might feel overwhelming to to change the the storyline about about how public space is perceived but and who the actors are being are that can change that space but i think the stories that we're hearing from folks in the field like lena like darren and kathy is that um it's very easy to to empower people um to to you know just think differently about that space yeah and it, it seems one of the reasons why people are sitting or lying down in public spaces is obviously that they're looking for a safe place to be. And what I loved about that, that story that you just told Suzanne and her story, Lena, is that you're finding the right people who are understanding that from both perspectives that have been victimized in a certain way by society or, or by people around them, but who then bring an empathetic perspective to the management and design of, of those public spaces. I want to pivot just a little bit here. I happened to just be on the East Coast this past weekend and was visiting um, with some park managers who were wrestling with some pretty similar issues to those that are con that confronted um, the Civic Center in San Francisco. And they're really at the beginning of this process. They're trying to figure out how they vet um, potential partners uh, from the human services community. They're trying to understand how. Uh, they also have political eyes on this park, so how the politics work out of the park, how the corporate uh, folks who look or look on in on the park are going to view a partnership between the human services community and park managers. 
I wondered, you know, probably they're they're probably thinking about this like you all were in 2015. I wonder if you could provide any advice to them from your perspective of like, hey, we they they've recognized the issue, they understand what's going on, but they aren't quite sure what the next step is, how to engage and build a constituency, build public support for the actions that you all have been taking for a number of years now. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because um, Lena and I worked together on Civic Center on the design projects that she mentioned, Hunter's Point Family Staffing, and um, I was on the project management side. And so in in terms of literally working with the designers to um, implement the project and to get it permitted and cited in Civic Center, the reason why we realized the partnership was necessary was because there was this... Um, Sort of this, like, I don't know how else to describe it, but very vague, like, fear um, or concern or apprehension around the idea of putting in not only artwork, but even, like, benches back into a public space that has had had, had them removed years ago um, to negate people from loitering in <laughs> camping. And there was this very bizarre sort of, um, you know, fear around putting in a new project that was very optimistic and very aspirational um, in terms of the belief of these designers that we could build something with community input and it could be loved and cared for and enjoyed by all who move through this space. There just wasn't the willpower on the, on the city side to believe that that was possible. And it was stemming, I believe, from a place of there are so many people on our streets that are, are in camping and are in, in using um, all types of uh, substances uh, why would we want to permit something like this? And that question, that that reaction did work for us. <laughs> we were not going to accept that. And so that's really where we were talking with um, our peers at Public Works at the time about, you know, what can we do? Like, what would make, what do you think would make people feel comfortable about introducing something like this um, and leaving it without having, you know, armed guards here? Because that defeats the whole point of this inspired public space activation. And that was when um, the light bulb sort of went on and and we realized that, like what Lena was saying, like lessons learned from the pit stop program showed that you have staff there that can have some uncomfortable conversations, but also be super helpful and lovely. Um, but if you have staff there that's taking care of the space and cares about taking care of the space, you know, it's possible to, to try new things. Um, so we literally gleaned lessons learned from the pit stop program and applied them to this dynamic exploratorium project that consisted of a series of of wooden walkways and um what they call sound phenomena big chimes big xylophones things like that and we were able to make something work in civic center that worked for civic center though and i don't know if that would work for any and all public spaces around the country let alone the world i think that it's really about you know what is this neighborhood what is this space who uses this space um, are there kids nearby? Are there seniors nearby? You have two really disparate populations kind of coming together at this public space. In the case of Civic Center, that's absolutely the case. And we have a Tenderloin community, you know, just to the north of the area that we're talking about right now, Civic Center, largely low-income, community of color, um, lots of children, lots of seniors. And then to the south, we have literally the Twitter building, Uber, Square. We have tons of new development, thousands of new housing units coming. And market rate. So we've got a very unique space right there. Um, and Hunter's Point Family was the right 
intervention for that space. But I think that it really is, it's dependent on the neighborhood. But I think one of the biggest lessons learned from this is how do you have people out there that um, can have conversations that are difficult with individuals, but they aren't in uniform necessarily? How do we take a step back from policing our spaces and actually try to seek out different ways to have conversation? You know, and I say that because from a monetary standpoint, which is what I imagine other municipalities are also thinking about, it's expensive to have officers out at all hours of the day in a public space. And so it's, you know, long-term sustainability, like what makes sense? And in the case of this area, it was to have staff um, from Hunter's Point family, many of which are really invested in the city of San Francisco. But, um, you know, for other cases, it's it's more about um, are there people in this neighborhood that have been wanting to do something in this space and you just haven't asked them how they could do it or you just haven't asked them like what final piece of the puzzle could the city step in and help with and with that I mean you know for smaller public spaces there are some people that have just been wanting to do you know maybe spur of the moment art activities or maybe there's a group of seniors in the area that would like to feel a little more comfortable out in that space but there isn't anywhere really to sit and so I think that sometimes it does make sense to have staffing, but other times it can make sense to just literally ask people in that adjacent area, what can we do to help you accomplish whatever activity or vision you have for the space? And maybe that is a little bit of staffing. Maybe it's not having, you know, 10 people there around the clock. Maybe it's having one or two people that are there to help move and take out tables and chairs. But once you have more people in a space, it creates a more healthy and social environment. And so it should never be about pushing people out. It should be, how do we lift up the existing ecosystem that's already here in this neighborhood and reflect it in a public space? How can we do something like that? So that would, I guess, be my advice, because we are asked this a lot, you know, even in San Francisco, it's, I've had questions about random public spaces all over the city and the questions posed, should we hire Hunter's Point family to staff this kind of a space? And it's like, well, what's, what, are, what are the challenges here? Like, what, how big is the space? Have you talked to the three businesses that are sitting right there that could just get a encroachment permit and have outdoor tables and chairs? Like, you know, what, how, what steps have been taken? And so I think it requires, you know, asking the neighbors, just like we do with Refix It, like, hey, is there something you've been wanting to do? And, and is there one barrier that the city could help with to make it possible? So that, I guess that would be my, my response to that question. Yeah, I just want to take this moment to disagree with Kathy. No, the answer is always Hunter's Point family should be there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, trust me, I have, um, I have to stop myself sometimes, <laughs> Lena. <laughs> and, and and as a matter of fact, I actually think the city is going in that direction because they there's another kind of group that's associated with the city that's asked us to come on to 22 of the most impacted additional uh, intersections in San Francisco. I guess what I would say, I mean, I think I think the thing about Hunter's Point family is we kind of make it look easy and so I got a lot of folks that are kind of trying to replicate the program or, you know, but but it's but it's not, you know, it how do I say this? So Hunter's Point family is based in San Francisco's baby Hunter's Point community, which is is a historically African American community that was built uh you know, right after World War II with the shipyards. Um, and during the, the 80s and 90s, you know, we had exorbitantly high, you know, homicide rates, incarceration, all that kind of stuff. To, I think per capita, we ended up 
having more homicides than even in Iraq. We were at the height of the Iraq war. Um, and it just, and because we're so geographically so tiny, that meant everything affected everybody. And I just, so I think, you know, we came out of a, a, a hard, hard place. And because of that, I went back, you know, at the age of 40 to pursue my doctorate in psychology to really start focusing on trauma. And that kind of led to all these different worlds, you know, reentry, um, you know, homelessness, all this kind of stuff that I really wasn't even focused on before. And I think what, what we exported, we exported, you know, what, what is common terms in psychology now, grit resilience. And mm. so when we when we have our 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 people who are out there, you know, the thing about prison is they 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 need to have structure. And so I don't mean so much a prison system, but I mean a lot of the prison gangs, like what they really value is structure, organization. And so I think what's important about um us what we've been able to do is create a structure. This is how we handle it and also give them the opportunity to, to utilize their transferable skills to bring structure into an area. And that, that structure is how we communicate with one another. That structure is how, you know, what kind of respect that we have in a certain area and our work ethic and cleanliness and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I think, I think what's important is, is that you have to, and, and not everyone can do this. Not, not everyone can do this. And so I think you have to, it, within each city, you got to see organizations who are there who are very, very much connected um, to the community that um, have very high standards for themselves and the community and those that represent them from the community and, and that they, you know, can, can, can create a structure for people to come into and really have a, a sense of pride and, and, and have a sense of purpose. And, and when you, when you kind of say to people, you know, and our guys, they have this, it's like almost this, 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 uh, the relationship with the community that let's say the police used to have in, you know, Mayberry or whatever before, you know, we kind of got into this movement, um, where, well, you know, that's a, another whole long historical thing based in racism and all kind of stuff with, with the distrust with the police. But it, but they kind of play that same role, uh, where people kind of look to them for for anything. They're the representative uh, of the city, so to speak. So our guys have saved I don't know I've lost count now at least thirty seven people's lives who OD'd and you know or uh, almost passed out because of dehydration or heart attack or different kinds of things, and they have relationships with with the city. And I guess what I would just say is that you have a, a city would really have to look at kind of those things I think are most important. What kind of relationships do you have with these folks? And what kind of structure do you have? And then how how you bring them to their highest self and and then and then it's constantly reinforced by everybody in society and it just builds this feedback loop, right? Where they're even more encouraged to keep the area clean, to make sure that people are being respectful. And, and that people acknowledge um, and praise them uh, for their work every day in in some of the, you know, most craziest intersections, in a, I would say, in America, even down Skid Row, Six and Gladys, you know, 
these kind of, you know, Taylor and Ellis in San Francisco, Turk and Hyde. I mean, you say the area, the corner, and we're there. And we have just watched the transformation that I'm still blown away by, you know. So I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> does it? It did, yeah. And yeah. Suzanne, I mean, this, this kind of story has to be just so rewarding for you based on your research mm -hmm. interests. Yeah, and I feel like I'm already, I've lost the thread of the original question, but I, I, I'm I'm so inspired by kind of Kathy and, and Lena's comments. Maybe I'll just kind of um, bounce um, some ideas based on those. Um, but, you know, I think that one of the, the major themes that we're pursuing in our work with the assembly guidelines and also that we're, we're trying to, to celebrate um, with the, the communities that we see doing this type of work around the country is this notion of focusing on public space and using the process, the design, the maintenance, the activation around public spaces as a way to kind of break down silos and give people something to work on together. Um, I know I've heard Cassie say, and I'm not going to paraphrase correctly, but you know, like no one's going to do it alone. The city's gonna, not going to fix this problem independently, right? We're, so we actually really need to have everybody bring their strengths to the table. Um, so I think with our with the research that we're able to provide, one thing it does is give people who are advocating for public space in their community um, a, some a, a little bit of of a resource uh, to to maybe sway an elected official that investing in seating is really important in this community. For example, because we know that um, people who have you know adequate public seating in their public spaces also tend to have greater community pride and greater trust in their local government. And that actually happens to be um, associated with greater satisfaction and with uh, the police when people have um, adequate seating in their community. Um, we might uh, let elected officials know that, you know, it's really worthwhile to invest in arts and culture and public space because, you know, people who say that they have great access to arts and culture and vibrant public events in their community are 21% more likely to rate their local leaders as effective. So I think that type of research can really help sway some decision making at the uh, public sector level. Um, what we're really surprised and excited about is that, that the research that we've published and the, the, the strategies that we've put out there through the Assembly Civic Design Guidelines are also being taken up not only by public sector, not only by community organizations that are advocating for change, but also by private sector development community. I think that oftentimes, um, they would like to have a better relationship with the neighborhoods where they're building, but um, have, have been looking for, the, for tools to make that a little more effective. So by giving them resources, um, you know, the private sector actually builds and is responsible for maintaining a significant amount of public space to give, to give them the tools that they need to show that they are, that they are committed to um, creating vibrant community and working with the surrounding neighborhoods to, to create great civic resources um, is another important tech. Um, and then finally, you know, I think about an example from, uh, it's one of my, you know, one of our advisors is from Fairmount Park Conservancy in Philadelphia, and they um, sponsor an amazing initiative where they, you know, they basically really look at, look to the, the community leadership um, that's happening in the in the city around the design and the management and care of public spaces. And, you know, there's a, um, at least 100 different parks, friends groups um, all across the city, like almost every neighborhood neighborhood park has 
has a group of people who say, who basically have take it, are taking responsibility for that space. Um, and then the Fairmont Park Conservancy convenes those groups every year, gives them a chance to um, to work together, to talk to each other, to learn from each other, um, and and really celebrate the work that they're doing. So um, I think that that that's a, that's another model to to you know look at what's already happening at the neighborhood level. Who are the who are the local residents who are like Kathy said, like, you know, let's, these are the steps. We really wanted to do a community garden. We really wanted to do some public art. And we were able to overcome hurdles and make it happen. And then how do we actually build that network on a broader level throughout our city? Um, so the, just, just really thinking through all the different players that can be involved in public space and how exciting it is when we're able to, you know, problem solve from this very multi-pronged, multidisciplinary perspective. Can I just add where we end that I forgot to say? The reason why we've been able to do this work is because the city of San Francisco um, were brave enough to reach out to us and to allow us to do this. And, and, to, and really we're being creative and thinking outside the box. And I, I think that is the most important thing that I did not mention. The city invited us to sit at the table and be thought partners. And that's almost unheard of for community-based organizations. So I just think that that's important to say. Thank you. Thanks for saying that, Lena. And then, then actually to like revisit what Suzanne was saying, um, when I was in Detroit, I definitely did say, and I still believe and firmly believe that it's one of the biggest things that government can do is learn when to say, I don't know how to solve this problem and when to take a step back and let another group or person come in who is capable of taking on a challenge that the city is just not suited to take on. So it's been a really awesome partnership working with Hunter's family and other organizations in the city of San Francisco that are able to do work that complements um, the work of the city of city government. Suzanne, Kathy, and Lena, thank you so much for sharing the stories of how at the local level you're you're rebuilding kind of this lost sense of civic trust. And and what's amazing is that it's happening through the issue of homelessness, which has been probably one of the most divisive issues around civic trust. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing your stories today. Um, I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners have probably learned a lot from you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at the Sound of Y V E dot com.